Hello, welcome to Loving Colour. I'm Tanaka, I'm black. I'm Imogen, I'm white. We're friends, and we're here to share our experiences with whiteness, anti-blackness, and racial discomfort. In each episode, we'll tackle a different aspect of racism, both enacting it and being impacted by it. We've chosen to do this by doing what we do best, telling stories. This is what it looks like when justice starts at home. This is episode five, where we're going to explore the way colonialism has touched our own family histories. And we're going to try to imagine a future where decolonization is at the heart of our culture and communities. So this is an episode about colonial history, but in my story anyway, I talk quite a lot about personal wealth, like family wealth. And that obviously strays into the territory of class. And I'm very aware that in discussing race, class is a very important element of that conversation. In a way, it's impossible to have the conversation of race without touching on class as well. And we are going to have an episode in the next season specifically about class. So I'm not going to go into it in great detail now. But I almost wanted to issue a bit of a content warning um, and to just state that, I mean, I know that the privileges I'm talking about in this episode are not simply down to race, they're also down to class. And that obviously not all white people have the same experiences. And that, as I say, we will be going into this topic in more detail further down the line. And I just wanted to say basically the same thing. Um, the reason we're not talking about class in this episode is because we're going to give it its own time next series. Uh, and yeah, we just wanted to give it, give give that discussion uh, its own place and not trying to squeeze it into this one yeah great okay thank you and then I guess we dive in don't we this is really key to me because I feel like I went through the majority of my life without understanding the history of colonization I knew that Britain was an important and wealthy country I even used to think it was a huge country because we were so important and wealthy. How could it be otherwise? Um, but I didn't have any idea where our wealth and power came from. And I think that probably that's still true for a lot of people that we don't really understand our colonial history. And therefore, that kind of enables racism it enables a sense of white superiority of British brilliance and it prevents us from understanding the roots of racism so it's just absolutely fundamental it seems to me mm. what about you yeah I think the big thing I hope people remember is that this is not like ancient history um mm. like you know my my dad grew up under essentially a colonial government um or like yeah. a like you know Zimbabwe it's 
complicated um but certainly it's like this is definitely within living memory um like my grandparents certainly all grew up in countries that had been colonized and which were uh, under a kind of colonial rule um with sort of varying levels of brutalization and terror going on and that affected how they parented and it affected how i was parented it affects um like i'm a product of colonial history like as i'll get into later uh, as well in in so many ways and actually like i'm a product of that in very obvious ways but we all we all are um it's just such a massive it's a massive part of of who we are and why we do um why we do culture and why we do community in the ways that we in the ways that we do right um i think understanding this history is about confronting who we are as as a people as a country as a as a world um it's not just kind of about this thing happened 200 years ago and people are still mad about it or not mad about it um this stuff plays out in our daily lives and i think if we understand it we we sort of get um we can understand what it might mean to divert it or to to play with it in ways which are healthier i guess than just regurgitating the myths and the silence that we've been handed down yeah so can you tell us a story about how this lives for you yeah uh i guess the the short answer is it's very live (laughs) uh it's really funny that the history episode is actually the thing that um the one that's shown up most currently in my life and is sort of happening at slightly in real time almost um but yeah i've been doing a bunch of family history research uh a lot of stuff just got digitized um and really you can't talk about well none of us can talk about our family history without talking about colonialism but i think particularly uh as someone from whose whose parents are from two different ex-British colonies. Uh, It's it's just kind of woven through. Uh, And so on on my mother's side, which is uh, Sri Lankan, as far as we know, completely Sri Lankan, uh, the names are, like, the names tell a story. So my mother's generation, which were, you know, who were born in the 50s, are kind of called... Lakshmi and Rudevi and Priyanti and very Sri Lankan names uh, and so are their parents uh, but then you go a generation further back and you've got Arthur and Annette and Edwin and uh, Felix and kind of these yeah these like suddenly there's just this generation which didn't have Sri Lankan names and you look at pictures of them and um, like very rarely do you see people in uh in sarong like the women are sometimes wearing saris um but mostly people are in suits and ties because um that side of my family were are quite privileged uh and yeah that's where our money comes from is we played the game um 
And Sri Lanka, for people who don't know, has like essentially divide and rule uh, worked really well there because there was a kind of pre-existing ethnic split, which was historically has always been conflict-riven. Uh, and kind of in the post-colonial era that has exploded and we were on the privileged side of it um, and as a result of being the good colonial subjects and uh, participating in those colonial structures we got a lot of money um, my family on that side have this story about uh, my great-grandfather's butler um so my grand- great-grandfather was a civil servant and he was a, a knight as well. He was Sir Arthur Godwin, something or other. Um, but he had this butler who had to wear in Sri Lanka in the tropical heat, full Downton Abbey style butler's uniform for 10 hours a day or something in this ridiculous kind of parody of 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 Englishness. And even to this day, you know, my grandmother has afternoon tea. Um like it's uh like that's a thing. And the school that my mother went to has a house, like a house system, like, you know, they have like Harry Potter style. And so I guess there is this this sense, especially when I go that that we are still living in this cultural colonialism um you know there is really a reason why even in my mother's generation people's command of singhala the the language of their ancestors is not great it's because it wasn't useful the useful thing is to learn english and that's the thing uh that that pushes you forward in life um so my great-grandfather was a knight my grandfather uh, my other great grandfather, sorry, was uh, an OBE, um, and we still have those those awards in a post colonial country it, on display in our in our sitting room over there. Like they're sitting there, you can't, you know, you walk past them every day. People see them when they come to come to hang out. Um, that's the history that we have access to. That's the history where there are records uh everything before that is really silent um so before that generation with the english names i actually don't know anyone's names i don't know what they did for a living um you know the history just stops there and that's not because there weren't methods of collecting history it's because people had to forget it i think that's the the thing that um, characterizes my family history is enforced forgetting because if you knew how to navigate your own culture, your own country, if you were actually good at it, that would hold you back. That cultural competency uh, would hold you back. You had to be ignorant about the way your ancestors lived and spoke and loved and did things in order to survive in order to thrive under colonialism and that's so kind of powerfully connected to the way my parents raised me which is yeah exactly the same thing was uh, like I don't speak either of the languages that my grandparents spoke I couldn't even have a conversation with my paternal grandparents because 
my yeah because it, that wasn't as important as me being really good at english um that was a decision my my family made and then kind of speaking of my dad there's an ongoing situation where um i won't say too much about it but because of the legacy of colonialism um i'm looking at potentially having to fight a legal battle to to recover someone's remains um and so the the question there for me is how much time and money do i pour into bringing to bringing a family member home and to bringing them to rest um and that's someone who you know was was essentially executed for instigating um a kind of resistance and and protest uh and whose body was desecrated by by any reasonable terms um in an act of what we would today call a hate crime and so yeah this is all very this is all very close to home like i can see the echoes of colonialism in the way i was brought up in what happened in my house in the privileging of britishness um and british style culture um like i sent my uh my aunt a message in singhala the other day for the first time in my life uh and i got i got some serious pushback like it was framed in a very jokey way but it was very kind of oh you you can't do that let's not do that that's not that's not uh that's not how we that's not how we interact um Mm. because i think on the there's a visceral level on which that feels uh dangerous to my family that feels like i'm I'm losing my ability to um, like even just one text where I was trying it out didn't mm. feel okay for them. So yeah, that's the, I guess, yeah, when I think about colonial history and my family, it's about this fundamental disconnection from my family uh, and this enforced disconnection, this having if there's one thing that ties together my mother's family's experience in Sri Lanka and my father's family's experience in Zimbabwe, it was that you had to send your children away from you for their own good. And it's kind of constant breaking of continuity and breaking of families in very different ways. Like there are very different levels of privilege and power and wealth on, on both sides of those families. I always kind of, joke that i think my mother's family and probably were in the top 10 percent in terms of wealth in the world and my father's family were in the bottom 10 percent um which is probably true i'd have to do the numbers but still it was always this uh having to create distance between children and your children and you and how you grew up having to break your continuity and adapt to something else uh for their own good 
and it kind of every time I come across a, dis, a, a situation where clearly some, one of my ancestors has had to make one of those decisions of breaking the continuity of creating artificial distance between them and their kids um that yeah that kind of still hurts and I don't know how we as a family in my generation go back from that I don't know if we can I think a lot of us is just lost Hmm. I um but yeah I I sort of touched on the the family silver thing which is emblematic of uh of what that looks like in in my family that's what we have instead of a rich history where we know people's names and we know their professions and what their lives were like we just have these these pieces of silver on the on the display board um but I know you have a, a bit of a, a story there in your own family, Silver. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I do. And it feels so... Um, it, yeah, the, the clash of the meaning of it feels so extreme right now you know just speaking about it now on the back of what you've just said um because it's kind of always just been this casual thing that was there for us and it took me a very long time to understand its history and, you know, the, the fact that it was tied with colonial history as well. A very long time. And it's actually relatively recent that I've understood that because of this one particular story. So, yeah, my my family have a collection of silver. So kind of cutlery and dishes, you know, bowls and like a gravy boat. And there's these candlesticks um and this silver was wheeled out every christmas so that we could use it and so part of getting ready for christmas was polishing the silver and it's one of the jobs that i did and when i was young i knew that it was a symbol of wealth but i didn't know how kind of exclusive that was like how <laughs> Um, peculiar that was I kind of just assumed that that's what people did and that's what people had like you do when you're a child um, and only relatively recently did I start to question where it had come from because I think you know in this society it's very possible for us to go an entire lifetime without acknowledging or understanding where our collective wealth as a nation comes from mm. so this particular story is a time when I just began to be aware of the provenance of this stuff so the silver generally lives in a safe and there was a guy that had been doing some work for my parents and he apparently is very into 
silver and he was very interested in it as well and had a few pieces himself and he and my mum had spoken about this so my mum said well do you want to have a look at it and she was showing him the family silver which in itself feels like such a bizarre concept but I was there I was down visiting my parents this is only in the last five years so I went into the room and found them looking at this stuff and this guy was asking my mum where this wealth came from and my mum whose family was not so wealthy so that all the silver and stuff comes from my dad's family and so this guy asked where does it come from and my mum was like oh well Imogen and I don't like to ask about that, do we, Imogen? <laughs> Which immediately set alarm bells ringing. And, you know, of course, I should have asked this before. I should have questioned it. I should have understood it before. But this got me thinking. And this was around the same time as... I don't even remember the British Treasury putting out a tweet saying, hey, just to let you all know, taxpayers, you've finally stopped paying off the quote unquote reparations that have been being paid to the descendants of people who owned enslaved people. Mm. Right. So taxpayers have been paying to the owners of slaves and plantations all that time so not long after that story with my mum and the silver that tweet came out and then there was this big conversation that started up around wealth and slavery in this country and so I started asking myself where does our wealth come from bearing in mind that's me in my late 30s like this is very recent and so sometime later, I went back to my mum and I was like, look, I know you said that you don't want to know, but like, I want to <laughs> know. I want to know what's in our history. I want to know where that money comes from. Because as and when the time comes that, you know, I will inherit. Well, actually, my parents don't have much um, money wealth, but they have a big house, which is worth a lot of money. And then, you know, all this silver. Mm. Although apparently... The silver goes to my brother because that's the way it just happens in the family. I heard that recently from my dad. He <laughs> sat me down and he was like, just so you know, the silver will go to your brother. That's just the way it is. So that's interesting as well. It's all in linked with patriarchy <laughs> as well as colonial mm. history. It's also very convenient that you're not going to get your hands on it because you might melt it down and I don't know, give it to Black Lives Matter or something. <laughs> Well, exactly. And so, yeah, right. So this leads me on exactly to the next point. So I went to my mum sometime later and I was like, I want to know because my mum's also kind of obsessed with family history and she's been doing one of those ancestry things where you can trace and mm. make a family tree and then other people can contribute to it. So she's been finding out quite a lot about family history lately, both her side and my father's side. So... I was like, look, where does it all come from? And I knew it was my dad's side. And I was like, I knew some stuff about some inheritance. And I knew that 
there had been a big family inheritance, but that a lot of the money that had been inherited had then been gambled away by this profligate man who used to, yeah, just kind of spend money on wine and women. Um, But where had that money come from in the first place? And what she did tell me was that the previous ancestor, the person who had a lot of wealth, was a cotton trader. Mm. And, you know, around that time that the Treasury made that tweet and there was a lot of discourse in this country about historical wealth and there was um, a published um, list of all the names of people who had owned, quote-unquote, enslaved people, And my family's names were not on that list. So I knew that we weren't actually slave owners. But the fact that this guy was a cotton trader means obviously, and they were from the northwest of England. And she had already said something to me about, oh, Liverpool and trading. Mm. And yeah, it turns out that he was a cotton trader. So that means that that trading was going on with the Americas. And that that's where the family money came from so what you're saying about yeah would I you know if I inherited it would I melt it down and give it to Black Lives Matter it's actually not far away from what I've been thinking which is that I feel like I need to get to such an extent to 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 get to a place where by the time if I were to inherit a part of that house where my parents now live that I would not need that money and that I would create some kind of foundation, like an anti-slavery foundation, or I would put it into a foundation, something like that, so that I would not myself be living off that money. But then this story gets complicated because I said that to my husband, who's black, and he was like, that's the biggest white privilege I've ever heard, the idea that you would get this inheritance and then just, you know, not not keep it give it back like that is like a definition of white privilege and then also there's this question that comes about if we are to have children should I you know would it would that be a justifiable reason for keeping that wealth in the family to be able to give it to my children who will be seen as black and who will be mixed Mm. race so and not just kind of mixed race but also jamaican heritage as well so there's kind of uh like there is a direct um, exactly a direct link there right exactly and and maybe that's it and it's not a foundation it's that it skips a generation and it goes to them but then you know then there's guinea as well and would there be some justice in you know in him inheriting that and i feel that there would but then you know is is that also me kind of giving myself a get out and being like, oh, that's fine if that money stays in the family. And also, you know, essentially it's blood money, right? So is that money that, ah, it's complicated, isn't it? Mm. I guess it would be for any children we might have to decide, is that money that they want? Um, What Mm. happens to it? Maybe they are the best people to decide as well, right? Because they're the ones living with both of those histories. And that's kind of, as the mixed race person, I'm always, I'm always aware of, um, like my existence is a complexity. Like 
Mm. I wouldn't exist if not if the British Empire had not existed. My parents wouldn't have both uh, moved to Britain. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of sitting with that complexity is the really important thing I feel about that everyone needs to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's it, isn't it? The sitting with the complexity. And I think one of the reasons that, you know, my mum said, oh, we don't want to talk about it, do we? Was that she did not want to sit with that complexity. She probably didn't want to admit to herself that, you know, because it's that money that has ensured that she's lived a very good life. She's worked her entire life, but, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the reason they live in the house they live in now. But, yeah, speaking that story to you when you've just told those stories of yours, particularly your father's side of the family, um, your Zimbabwean side, where there's this violence and silence and uncertainty caused by those very you know caused by the very means that were bringing wealth to my family essentially it feels very the stakes feel raised for sure Hmm. I guess I'm I'm also aware in the moment that we're we're recording this which is you know October 2020 so some I was about to say in the middle of COVID-19 but then imagine if this lasts another three years and people are laughing at us in the future going huh you thought this was the middle yeah Um, but yeah we're recording this in October of 2020 uh, and if there's one thing that this pandemic is showing it's actually how connected we are like this mm. is the thing that spreads person to person and it's do you know what i mean it's not it's not um you know it doesn't live for a long time on on surfaces and stuff and this this bug from from china has spread literally all over the world um mm. in a very relatively short period of time and i think a lot of the reasons that people have for not dealing with colonial history is because it lets them pretend that they're not that connected to a random you know person in rural china or in tanzania or uh you know like in um i don't know somewhere in in south america or whatever Mm. um like it allows people to pretend that actually those people's lives are nothing to do with them and that we don't have a shared destiny and therefore shared responsibility to each other. Yeah, and that's that same thing, isn't it? About the kind of the ignorance that we have as white people, as British people, as pre as as former colonizers, or rather maybe as colonizers um to this day. Um that yeah, we, we, our society, lives, education system have built, been built in such a way that it enables us to live a life of ignorance to where our wealth and privilege comes from. 
and mm. therefore it allows us to maintain this sense of whiteness as better than because we have wealth we have power and like definitely growing up I had this belief that we must just be better because look like we've got clean cities and smooth roads and high-speed trains and 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 what I was seeing on the news was you know African countries specifically Ethiopia I was growing up in the early 80s so um yeah drought and famine and there's something about the images that you see that allow you to build in a kind of better than um attitude and the fact that we don't discuss where that division comes from enables that to continue for sure yeah yeah i probably thought much the same way growing up which was that white people were better than because right. their countries had built this stuff and the countries yeah. my parents came from hadn't yeah. um and there's this shift I'm I'm making in my head at the moment, which is to talk r- rather than talking about developing countries, to talk about recovering countries. That's um, yeah. Which yeah, it just makes a lot more historical sense um, mm. because developing, I guess, implies there's some sort of yardstick, right? There's like a first you do you get yourself a parliament, and then you uh, deal with your your innate corruption because of course you're going to be corrupt and then you uh have a free market and then you build wealth and that do you know what i mean it, it implies that there's like one way for a country to develop and it just so happens to be the same way mm. that countries like britain and france developed um, yeah and it's patronizing isn't it it's like you're on the way you're on the way there mm. you're doing okay like you've taken some steps rather than yeah like acknowledging the for example, in South Asia, these f- extraordinary um, civilizations which existed long before, you know, when we were in the Dark Ages, the European Dark Ages, there was, you know, the Mughal Empire and all these extraordinary <clears throat> architecture and and culture and civilization that we essentially destroyed Um so yeah and who, even who in, gets to say what's developed right yeah and who gets to say what the hallmarks of culture are as well because mm-hmm. there are really good reasons why we don't have huge massive massive ancient cities uh in africa and that's to do with the relationship that people had uh to the nutrient cycle and to the land because mm. like most of africa is well um fact check much of africa is plains and plains um renew their nutrients through migrating animals and so actually it doesn't make sense to build massive static cities because Mm. it's a much more unreliable um landscape which also means that you need a huge amount more ingenuity to thrive in it um but there are kind of hallmarks of civilization like my uh my great-great-grandfather would have been able to tell you thousands and thousands of years of history off the top of his head. Mm. 
you know like that's yeah. that's a level of um and not just not just repeating but understanding um mm. and interpreting like that's a level of expertise um and intellectual agility that you wouldn't find in a european context because people stored information differently in a european context and they disseminated it differently um yeah and i think the one thing that uh we we make a mistake of when we talk about history is that we turn military prowess into a virtue Mm. which is a really weird thing to do like hands off to to europe really good at waging war in a way that lots and lots of the rest of the world has never been Mm. um i don't necessarily think that that's like a moral (laughs) justification (laughs) for anything (laughs) like like great you invented the gun there's like sure okay ingenuity tick um yeah that is not we're still that's an explanation for why european colonialism happened Mm. and was so damaging and was so uh was so successful but we i think there's a there's a certain element of intellectual thought in this country which is like and therefore we deserved the wealth because we innovated in into being able to take it yes Um, exactly yeah and that feels quite like like think about what the implications of that are Mm. like if i invent a way to come into your house and take everything from you and you know abuse you does that mean that i therefore deserve it like what are we saying here yeah why aren't we rewarding the really crafty uh burglars (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah yeah like it's literally it's it's turning criminal not even criminal it's turning like dehumanization into a virtue um and there were lots of like cultural innovations that existed in the pre-colonial era that we're only just managing to get back to like valuing lgbt people um, Mm. which is something that existed in kind of various ways and forms in various pockets um across the pre-colonial world um i was reading something about uh oh i'll see if i can find a citation for this and if not we'll edit it out um but i was reading something about uh, a tribe in southern africa or a, a group of tribes who had essentially eliminated war in fact no i know who it was it was the zulu uh, and the kind of neighboring um uh like their neighbors because i remember huh. the context of it they'd essentially gotten to a point where war was a football match like it was a highly ritualized thing if there was a dispute mm. you would go and you would stand on two lines and you would wave spears at each other and there was a there was a ritual to it and occasionally someone would get carried away and three people or or four people would die in a war and that mm. was like insane levels of carnage mm. like insane um and this is a highly connected group of people with uh well, like with a trade network that goes out through um through the 
east of Africa and is connected to India and connected to all sorts of other parts of the world. This is not like an isolated, tiny group of people. Um, mm. But they just found a way of not doing war. Um, and it wasn't until colonialism started washing down the continent that they realized they had to rediscover war. Um, right. And that's where Shaka Zulu and his, I think his father uh, had to come up with, like they, they literally had to reinvent spears because they had not had a use for actual useful weapons in a long right. time. Um, and that's, yeah, like, is that not also a great civilization? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. is that not something that we are still not at in the, in the quote unquote West? Mm. Um, is, is, is actual practical pacifism? Yeah. It comes back to this thing of the lens of whiteness as better, as default, um, and that we are limited by that because we're not able to see those progressions as such. Mm. We mark everything by our own sense of what's an achievement and therefore we're not able to learn and develop ourselves. So everybody loses out, mm. right? It comes back to this thing yeah. that it... <sighs> Racism doesn't just harm the oppressed, it harms the oppressor. Mm, yeah. And thinking about it in terms of family and projecting into the future, um, it harms everyone's descendants because yeah. those are going to be the same people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what can we do better? Mm. So... I'm thinking about this in the context of now as well, because we're approaching remembrance season yeah. in Britain and pop poppy wearing season, uh, which is the thing I have feelings about, but that's a different show, I guess. Yeah, um, likewise. <laughs> <laughs> but it does strike me that um, as well, we're in Black History Month and it strikes me that we do this weird thing with post-colonial history where even the term is an academic term. It's like, it's literally from the academy. We talk about decolonizing universities and, and that kind of, those kinds of spaces. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's worth thinking about how do we integrate decolonization like into our communities, into our lives? Um, like what's the, what's the, what's the relationship down home version of, of decolonizing our thinking and for sure part of that is like the formal education system and you know that sort of that sort of stuff but it's also I think there are more organic ways of doing it um and kind of thinking with how do we already do history and memory in this country mm. um and this summer when we were was it only this summer that uh, that the roads must fall stuff came to a head and uh, Colston came down in in Bristol and all of that it stuff? Certainly was it yeah early summer. <laughs> it feels like a thousand years ago. Mm. Um, but I guess this question for me is about who gets ceremony mm. because 
Colston coming down was seen by a lot of people as like a rupture in the continuity of Bristol. For for those who don't know, Colston was a, a slave trader who had a lot of memorials in Bristol because he was also a philanthropist. Um, and his statues were, were brought down um, by protesters. And there was kind of a lot of discussion about, was that vandalism? And yes, it was, but kind of also uh, was maybe it was extremely necessary. Like the toppling of a statue is a very important image. And I was watching it and it actually really made me sad because it didn't bring everyone along. You know, the mm. toppling of that statue felt like a rupture rather than a ceremony. And I was imagining, okay, like, what if we actually built ceremony about around decolonization? What if we got together when we're allowed to get together again um, in mm. spaces like the one where Colston's statue was and we actually did some mourning for the people who he enslaved? Yeah. Like, and we, we sang the songs that they would have sung and we, um, you know, we held space for the grief that their families would have felt and that they would have felt. Um, what if we ritualized uh, like this education and brought it into spaces? Um, I know someone in Glasgow who does a slavery walking tour of Glasgow where you go around and you talk about where the wealth came from in the stones, you know, that make up various buildings. Uh, like actually rooting it into our physical spaces. Um, there's also this part of me which is always bringing things back down to relationships and to friendships. Mm. And like in a relationship when you've done something wrong and you apologize and you you start taking steps towards making it right, it feels uncomfortable, yeah. but it also feels good. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It feels like we're closer together. And I don't know whether that exists like that's what I that is what I want for white people in this hmm. is that feeling of oh this is uncomfortable and I it, I slightly hate doing it maybe but actually once we've done it it feels like it feels like we've moved somewhere it feels like actually some of this shame and guilt and stuff can be can be released because we've this felt like it brought us closer together hmm and this is the thing, isn't it? It it kind of brings me back to that conversation with my mother. Like, it's uncomfortable, this stuff. It's not going to be easy to talk about. Mm. But yes, we've got to do that work of having those hard conversations in order to acknowledge where we come from and to teach our children where we come from and to be able to start a path to moving forward. And like mm. with the statues, yeah, people don't want to talk about it. And when obviously when Colston was brought down, there was this great uprising um, of <laughs> people saying, oh, they're rewriting history. Are they going to come for Churchill next? And of course, it became this mm -hmm, huge mm -hmm, national mm -hmm. conversation where no one was actually talking about taking down Churchill and taking down all of these other statues across the entire country. People were talking about or, you know, I, the conversations I was hearing were much more about educating people around that history. So like you say, mm -hmm, yeah, the walking mm -hmm. tour in Glasgow, like for sure there should be that in Bristol. And 
in in all the major cities. There may be. I don't know that there isn't. (laughs) Oh, I see. Right. Yes. Yeah. But but yeah, to to, you know, maybe the statues should stay, but they should each carry a plaque which would tell the history of exactly what that Mm. person did, where they got their wealth. Like Holston, like why was he able to be a philanthropist? Well, because of the money that he'd he'd um, taken off the backs of enslaved people. Um, So if we, yeah, if those statues are there, then their stories need to be there. And yes, they're going to be uncomfortable. And yes, it's really difficult to have those conversations but that's, I feel, our responsibility as, again, as, as white people, as people who benefit from colonial wealth. We need to own that. We need to face those difficult conversations and have them. Mm. Yeah. And I think there's something about, um, like, the end game is that we can flourish together and that we have this ability to um you know i'm because i'm thinking about all of the all of the moments where at a remembrance ceremony or 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 anything like that where i felt really uncomfortable as a as a person of color around white people um yeah specifically around collective history um Mm. and those moments of of remembering collective history and it's because i'm i'm dealing with a level of ambiguity and complexity and i don't think everyone else is dealing with the ambiguity their ambiguity and complexity right like i'm sitting here Mm. thinking i don't know um like world war ii is actually probably not the worst thing for sri lanka because it's part of what got us independence and that's like a a thing that i'm happy happened for my family it was good for us also Mm. world war ii happened because of the holocaust that was Mm. fucking horrific um you know i'm i'm dealing with that kind of good bad thing and Mm. it feels like white people have given each other the luxury of simplicity yes and i I don't think it's 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 one of those luxuries that I think is a bit like Henry VIII having the luxury of unlimited access to sugar. <laughs> it's <laughs> a it should be shared around, and b I don't think it's good for you in the first place. Yeah. Uh, and I guess the invitation is like join me in my weird complexity, and sometimes this is very painful, um, mm. but also it's important. Um, yeah. I also want to talk about reparations, mm-hmm. the word which instantly makes people freak out slightly. Yeah. Um, but that's been around, right? I wonder if you've, yeah, you've, like we talked about melting down the silver and giving it to Black Lives Matter. Um, yeah. And I guess I have a, uh, I, I'm also conscious that we are politically moving away from the kind of structure which could even approach reparations like we're losing the department for international development here in the uk um which did lots of important work in the recovering world Mm. um and people are increasingly turning towards this britain for the british thing um 
but I do think it would be such a a, a right making thing to look at effective reparations for recovering for people in recovering countries, not for the countries themselves. And mm. I think that's an important distinction because um, I'm sort of uncomfortable with the way Western democracy is sort of applied willy nilly to to very different contexts in Africa and Asia um, mm. with varying levels of success. But, you know, if there was a way, which I'm sure there is, to kind of via concerted effort get money into the hands of people whose lives have been affected, whose wealth has been decreased by colonialism, um, and particularly, like, think about, you know, West Africa and people, the people who remained in West Africa uh, in a situation where there's huge collective trauma because people keep disappearing and being sold. Uh, mm. And also you lose generations and generations of able-bodied workers because they're being shipped across the Atlantic. So like that kind of consistent wealth loss uh, over hundreds of years is is significant. Um, like I, the solution of giving the wealth back should be on the table. Yeah. Especially since there is way more wealth in the world at the moment than there has ever been, you know, per human. Like we literally haven't, we have enough food to feed 10 billion people mm. um, on this planet, for example. Like there is enough resources for everyone. Yeah. Um, it's just about the fact that we mismanage them and are not effectively distributing them. Mm. So I think giving the wealth back is an important thing. And I, um, one of the things that uh, I grew up kind of understanding because I had I had relatives who worked in the development world was that a really effective way of doing that is to directly put wealth into the hands of uh, women in who are running families um, in a situation where there is very little wealth and then just being like, this is yours do what you think is the right thing with it mm. um like i want that option on the table for yeah for all sorts of countries um and yeah that's going to have to look different on the ground in different places but i think we overcomplicate the idea of reparations a lot like it's like it's fundamentally just give people the money back mm. and i think you're right in that we're moving away from governmental structures that are actually going to do that. So then maybe it becomes more of a personal responsibility that for those of us who feel like we aspire to anti-racism, mm. the whites, uh, we should be doing that with our money, you know, tithing, right? It's an old, good old Christian concept. Um, of keeping back a percentage of everything we earn mm. and doing charitable works with it. <laughs> and that could be, you know, what what I and I know a lot of other people have been doing since the resurgence of Black Lives Matter this mm. year has been to donate to organizations that are, you know, for example, the Black University um, and then families who are fighting for justice for their family members who've been 
either killed or violated in police custody. Um, there are so many organizations, aren't there, within... The, and I think it's interesting here to look at what we can do within the country, um, as well as the idea of, you know, the kind of following the third world aid system um, that obviously like the the the, reco- the recovering world it, it much mm. better put but that's the way it's seen still isn't it like third yeah. world aid so oh we'll help those people over there but actually how can we serve our own communities mm. with the wealth that we maintain yeah mm. i think there's a difference i want to pull out between aid and reparations as well which is just briefly which is um there are huge problems in terms of we're going to give this amount of money regularly into a community which i feel like doesn't always work in an Mm. aid context right because it's like then oh this then it becomes income and then there's the risk of dependency like i'm just Mm. talking lump lump sum life-changing lump Mm. sum once Mm. put that Mm. wealth in there um Mm. rather than like a little itty bitty bit into a community a time and a time and a time again because people invest with lump sums people uh you know build infrastructure with lump sums whether that's infrastructure in terms of their own small businesses or uh kind of communal infrastructure do you know what i mean um and they will build the infrastructure that they need rather than aid, which is like teeny tiny bits regularly, which maybe doesn't work as much. But anyway, like I'm not right, an economist. Okay. I might be very wrong about this whole system. Uh, yeah, but I think it's an important disclaimer. distinction. And at the same time, it makes me wonder how many people, um, you know, like I will. So how many people hearing this would be like, oh, well, I don't have a lump sum. Like I can't give a lump sum. Mm but maybe a, a small percentage. But then again, you know, yeah, maybe we tithe so we can put, you know, 5% of our earnings into a pot for as long as it takes. And once we've got a lump sum, then we give that. Yeah, yeah. you can and go then country I by country. That... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was going to say then I suppose that allows us to think about where it's going to go as well so that it's a considered act. Mm-hmm. It's not reactive like it has been yeah. in response to black lives matter where it's like okay i'm gonna give something to you know pe- police custody because that's the closest to the murder of george floyd and that feels like i'm doing something about the murder of george floyd which of course we're not um mm. but yeah if it's a long-term thing instead then then perhaps we can be more thoughtful about where that money goes and like for me this idea of my inheritance could be something that I invest in anti-slavery because that's quite a direct line from where it's come from. So like what's mm-hmm. personal to you, what would A, make a difference to you and B, like what I mean by that is what would make a difference to your sense of your wealth? Because I think, the mm-hmm, yes, the mm-hmm. amount that we give, you know, if it's bits and pieces, it might not, we might not ever feel the impact of that. And maybe it's more healing and maybe it's more constructive to think of giving an amount that will actually make an impact on you yourself the donor um yeah. but yeah i interrupted kind of you sorry 
Yeah, you were talking no, about um, what we can do here. Was I within our own yeah. communities? Was it? Do you mean? Yeah. And in and in the UK, yeah, that's something which I, yeah, that's something that I learned from a an anti-racism course that I was on with American teachers, um, and they were saying. Yeah, and it's also, you know, it's not necessarily about money. Maybe it's about time. And I think you were Mm -hmm. mentioning this in a previous episode as well. Like, what can I actually do? Can I volunteer with a particular organization? Can I use my skills to offer something to my community? So, like, for us, you know, we're theater makers, writers. So we're making this podcast. That's our contribution, partly. Um, But what else can we do? to ensure that we're using the skills that best serve other people, the skills that we have. So Mm. I could mentor young black people in my community who are interested in working in the theater, for example. Um, I could mentor young people locally who um, want, to increase their confident communication skills like that kind of stuff like I can give my specific skills to the community and I think the way that we define community is interesting as well because when I was thinking about that for a previous project I was thinking oh but people in my local geographic community are not watching my shows because I was performing them in different parts of the city and country. Mm. But actually, maybe it's more about my personal community. So a lot of my friends and relatives and colleagues were seeing my show. And so that was educating them. And that was, I'm talking about a piece about sexual violence. So that was educating people around me around that issue. And so maybe when I'm thinking about the work around anti-racism like I again I start to think about potential children I might have so then I start to think how do I educate the people around them so that I'm ensuring that any children I have will be safe within their own community so encouraging Mm. the people I know to do anti-racism work and yeah through this podcast for example to just talk about the ways in which I have enacted racist harm I think there's also something about taking these subjects out of their like special we're doing anti-racism now box you know that mode Mm. that people go into when they're like okay we're engaging with the hard thing and it's like no like I want to have children's songs about this stuff do you know what I mean I want to have children's songs about the end of slavery and about the place of Britain within it Um, like there's that that story I, I pull out um, all the time about the Lancashire uh, and Cheshire mill workers who went on strike against slavery, even though they were like, you know, there weren't protections or unions for striking workers back then. They were out on their own on a limb, but they had mm. this courage to say the last hands that worked this cloth that we're weaving or that we're um, processing were slaves hands and we're just gonna like we've never met these people across the ocean 
but out of solidarity and out of the belief that slavery is wrong, we're going to go on strike. Um, yeah. Like, where are our folk songs about that relationship? Like, you could do mm. a whole session. You could do a play, which was just... Oh, this is a good idea. Do I want? Do I want to give yeah, it to the? D- don't share it. <laughs> we'll just make it. <laughs> right. Cut. Yeah. Now we've got to make it. And I think rather than, um, you know, commissioning, I don't know, like David Olusoko or Afra Hirsch or someone to do a, a documentary about them, which is kind of the only way that we are willing to engage with that kind of history at eight o'clock on BBC two, which is like, fine, it's a good start, but yeah, maybe, maybe there are like other ways we can integrate it into what we're talking about. Love them both, Mm. by the way. Um, But like, where is it in our culture? Where is it in our, in our everyday speech? Where are the, you know, like I want us to be so good at anti-racist thought and decolonizing thought that it's actually in our sayings that, you know, Mm. I want it to be so much part of our cultural practice that 200 years from now, a linguist will be able to look back and say, this was an integral part of how people in the 21st century thought about their pasts because, because it's in, it's in their bones. It's in, it's part of, how they built connection with each other because that's ultimately what it's about right that's what it's for it's about staying with that troubling history because there are people in this society who don't have a choice but to be troubled by it Mm. and and if you're not there in the trouble with us then like do you even give a shit about us yeah yeah that's it and the thing about the mill workers that that uh, resonates is like you know those those weren't wealthy people they needed their salary Mm. they had families to raise and they went on strike and so if we're talking about tithing or or um giving lump sums that's the level i think that we have to go to right we we've got to put ourselves on the line a bit and not stay so comfortable. Mm. Yeah. I actually think... Um, I go back and forth on this. I'm wary of asking people, like white people who are marginalised in other ways to to put themselves on the line first. Mm. I think that that's, that feels slightly unfair. Um, mm. That's not an ask I'm making. I think the fact that that happened and that moment happened is really incredible and wonderful. And it was, I guess it was necessary at that time. But um, yeah, I'm also aware that there were, like the mill owners could also have participated in that, right? Like there's a broad, there are other responsibilities that were neglected. Um, Yeah, for sure. And I'm not implying that it has to be people who are unstable in that way, simply mm. that, you know, and for the wealthy people, if if they make a, a one-time donation that really dents their wealth, then they're going to feel it. Yeah, yeah. And then it's yeah. going to be worth something as well, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So 
Do you have anything else to say as we draw to a close? Uh, I guess I just, yeah, if there's one thing I wanted people to take away, it's that actually this is, um, this is not a policy discussion. This is not an academic discussion. This is about how do you do culture? How do you think about your personal history, your family, your, the way you interact with other people you share the world with do you know what i mean Hmm. um like there are stakes here yeah and yeah that makes me feel like it's going to be my responsibility as a parent to ensure that any child i have is aware of both well actually all sides of their history right their Hmm. legacy the legacies that they come from and to stand beside them as they work with that because it's complex isn't it Mm -hmm. Mm. yeah do you have any resources you'd like to share yeah my recommendation is black and british by david olusoga which is just an incredibly hit rich uh wonderful history of black people in britain from i think he starts he starts briefly with the romans and then goes into the tudor period um so he goes like way way back um yeah but yeah it's it's 2000 years of history pretty accessibly written um and then secondarily uh, i wanted to plug a film called Oh, forgetting it. I wanted to plug a film called Bell, um, which is about Dido Elizabeth Bell, um, who, yeah, it's... um, So Dido Elizabeth Bell was the daughter of an enslaved woman, uh, but who was raised in kind of an archetypal English country house. She was raised at Kenwood House, um by her great uncle who was also lord chief justice of england um who made an extremely important ruling um in the abolition of the slave trade so it's about the life of this mixed race upper class english woman essentially uh who probably her interpersonal relationship her family relationship with um lord mansfield was part of the the soup of of how abolition came about uh, and it's just an incredibly interesting story great thank you so i was also going to mention black and british so you've stolen that one <laughs> um, and so i don't actually have a book to recommend but yeah i would um uh i would second that although I haven't got through it myself I'm not very good at reading history so I've only read the beginning um (laughs) but I'm gonna keep on slowly throughout the rest of my life um and I would like to see your bell and raise you white psychosis by Dr Kinde Andrews where so it's a film where he actually 
examines the film Belle alongside a couple of other films which explore oh. colonial history. And he, I think it's a really great idea for um, to, to watch Belle first and then watch White Psychosis, um, which is available online. So you can make a donation, I think, but if you search White Psychosis and Dr. Henda Andrews, you'll find the website and um, you can go to it there. But basically what he does is he talks about the white lens through which mm. um, that film, even though it's made by a black woman, mm-hmm. there are still elements of that story which are quite white framed. So I believe Belle ends up having a relationship with some guy and her white friend doesn't get a relationship. And apparently that's historically inaccurate. So it makes it look like the black woman was having a really great time where actually people Mm. wouldn't consider to um, marry her. So it is, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting story and it's a great one to be aware of in terms of the length of black history in this country. Because of Mm. course, I think we're often still tempted to believe that black history in Britain only started with the Windrush, which is why Black and British is such a great Mm -hmm. book to read. Uh, But yeah, but also being aware of the lenses through which those stories are told. Yeah. And I think that um, in a perverse way, I almost like that about it, that it's very clearly in the tradition of uh english period drama with all of the kind of white lenses and the silencing that that genre entails um Mm. so it's definitely on the list of watch critically don't you know this is not this is not where you get your history from um but it is a it's very very interesting to see how um the existence of a of a mixed race woman is dealt with in that in that kind of genre, um, mm. and there are some great moments in it which feel very. There's a there's a moment where um, Belle is trying to comb her own hair and she doesn't know how to do it, and then the black mm-hmm. maid has to show her how to do it. Um, yeah. And it was just like the most painfully relatable <laughs> moment mm. for me as someone who grew up, um, yeah, with like in a in a mixed race household where, um, yeah, like my my dad was not so much doing my hair and my mother had no idea of what to do, um, yeah, kind of thing. So there are these really you can tell that it's it's smuggling something for black people into something which is ostensibly a very white Mm. into something which is ostensibly for people do you know what i mean it's doing that like slightly subversive thing of in my opinion anyway this is what it's doing it's this is the genre we have to cater to this audience because this is who watches these Mm. things with you know Mm. fancy dresses and all of that but it's just got these little moments that feel very very important um to me as a black British person just like seeded through it and that is a real um, that was a real game changer for me nice one thank you thank you for your wisdom and this conversation as always Mm. 
thank you for your like, openness and vulnerability and airing the family silver. <laughs> I knew it was going to happen sometime. Next week, we're going to be talking about humour and what kinds of things people find funny, but what effects they might have on people. Yeah. Um, how that interacts with race and racism. Does humour have a place in these discussions? If so, what does that place look like? And also some pretty horrific dad jokes. (laughs) That's basically the size of it, yeah. (laughs) Great, so thank you for being with us and we look forward to sharing more with you next week. We'll see you then. Bye. This is Loving Colour, co-hosted by me, Tanaka Mishi. And co-hosted and produced by me, Imogen Butler-Cole. You can find me at TKTheTwit on Twitter. And me at ImogenIBC on Twitter and Instagram. And both of us at Loving Colour Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Our theme music is The Boatman from Quest Ensemble's 2020 album, The Other Side. Thank you.